Ever since the Luddites smashed the textile looms in 19th century England, automation has generated anxiety about the future of human labor. The handloom operators feared they would find themselves destitute as machines produced more and better materials at a pace human hands could never match. And the Luddites were partly right. Factories did supplant these workers. And the transition to industrialization for them and their communities was wrenching. At the same time, the increased productivity brought on by automation unleashed massive wealth creation, spurring demand for new products and the workers to make them. Over a long time horizon, the cycle is virtuous, not vicious. With every new wave of automation, the fears of the Luddites have reemerged. Sure, over time, we're better off, but the short run can be hard. And as John Maynard Keynes said, in the long run, everyone's dead. Another common refrain is, this time it's different, and the benefits of automation will not keep up with the costs. Our most recent wave of technology, driven by computers and artificial intelligence, they say, is going to fundamentally reshape and reduce the scope of human labor to the point where people, will be needed less and less. My guest today on Hardly Working is sympathetic to these concerns in his new book, A World Without Work, Technology, Automation, and How We Should Respond. Daniel Suskin is a fellow in economics at Balliol College, Oxford University. Prior to joining Balliol, Suskin was a policy advisor in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit at 10 Downing Street. His previous book, The Future of the Professions, examined how increasingly capable systems, from telepresence to artificial intelligence, will bring fundamental change in the way that the practical expertise of specialists is made available in society. Daniel Suskin, thank you for joining us on Hardly Working. Great pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. We have a tradition on the podcast of guests kind of talking to us a bit about their own journey before they get into the specifics of their book. It's a podcast about vocation and career and work, direct themes that tie directly to your book, but we also like to hear about you. So if you could just give us a little bit, a few minutes of background on who you are and how you arrived at the work that you're doing today. Of course. So I, I'm currently a fellow in economics at Balliol College at Oxford University. And my main interest is in the impact of technology and particularly artificial intelligence on work and society more generally. I graduated from Oxford, I studied economics and went first into the policymaking world. So I worked in what was back then called the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit in the Prime Minister's Policy Unit, a team of advisors who worked for, we were officials rather than political appointees, and we worked for the particular Prime Minister of the moment. It was about 2010 when I first started turning my attention to the sorts of problems that I'm spending all of my time thinking about now. So I was working in the policy unit and my dad, who background on him as well, I mean, in the 1980s, he wrote his doctorate on artificial intelligence and the law. So almost 40 years ago, he was trying to build systems that could solve legal problems. And he spent his career up until then thinking about how technology affected the legal profession in particular. What happened in the years leading up to 2010 was that occasionally after talking to audiences, which would say, look, that's very interesting. What you're talking about applied equally well in our profession too. And I was in this policy unit in Downing Street working across a variety of different policy areas and with exposure to a variety of different professions. And it was clear then that significant change was in the air and that the professions appeared to face a common set of challenges. So we had this idea 
of joining forces to investigate the professions more generally. And the result of that was a book that was published in 2015 called The Future of the Professions, looking at how technology affected white collar workers in particular. And it was also at that time that I did a doctorate in economics back at Balliol College, looking more formally at the impact of technological change on the labor market. And that is where I am now. After my doctorate, I joined Balliol as a fellow in economics. We want to get to your book, and I would like you to just start out by giving us the overview. So what was your specific interest in writing the book? And then walk us through kind of its central insights and arguments. Every day, it seems we hear stories of systems and machines that are taking on tasks we thought until recently only human beings alone could ever do. Making medical diagnoses and driving cars, drafting legal contracts and composing music, designing buildings and writing news reports. Now, what does all of this mean for the vast majority of us for whom our job is our main, if not our only source of income? I wrote this new book, A World Without Work, because I just felt and still feel that we aren't taking seriously enough the threat of a world where there's not enough well-paid work for everyone to do because of these remarkable technological changes that are taking place. Now, it's worth saying that anyone who picks up the book expecting an account of some dramatic technological big bang after which everyone wakes up and finds themselves without work, they're going to be disappointed because I don't think that's likely to happen. Work is going to remain for some time to come. What worries me in the book is something else, which is just a fear that as we move through the 21st century, that more and more people might find themselves unable to make the sorts of economic contributions to society that they might have hoped or expected to make in the 20th century. So it's a less dramatic account that I'm giving in the book, but I think no less challenging a one. And the book is about that challenge. And I think most importantly, how we ought to respond to it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's always an interesting concept and struggle around this issue of artificial intelligence, because I, there's this idea that, you know, since the robots haven't shown up to kill us, all of the sort of anxiety about artificial intelligence is completely misplaced. And that's not the way it works, right? I mean, it's an organic process that unfolds over time. You address that theme in your book of like, at one moment, this looks like an artificial intelligence and the next moment, well, it's just baked into the environment. We don't really think about it anymore. I mean, this is exactly right. I think one of the mistakes that we make when we think about the future of work is that we tend to think about the future of work in terms of jobs. And if the unemployment rate isn't changing, then people, I think, too swiftly conclude that technological change isn't having a disruptive impact on the labor market. But one of the arguments I'm making in the book is that it's not just the quantity of work that might be affected by a change in the demand for labor, but also the quality of work. You know, how well paid is that work? How secure is that work? How long is the working day, the working week? If we spend too long fixing our attention on unemployment figures, how many jobs have been created or destroyed, we're going to miss these you know, subtle and more gradual changes that are taking place in other parts of the working world. 
So let's go into that a little bit, because I think the biggest argument against what you're saying in the book is the one that usually gets brought out by other economists, which is, look, ever since the automated looms showed up, we've been worried about the end of work. You know, what has happened, of course, is that machines don't just displace work, they create wealth, and that wealth then drives more demand that creates more work. So why is it different this time? Yeah. And I think that any conversation about the future of work has to make that its starting point. That ever since modern economic growth began 300 odd years ago, people have suffered from periodic bursts of panic about the technologies of the time taking on people's work. And yet time and again, those worries have been misplaced. There has always been enough work for people to do, at least with respect to technology. So that has to be the starting point. And and indeed, that is the starting point of, of the book. The reason it's different, I mean, the short answer is that our systems and machines, as as I mentioned before, are just becoming increasingly capable. They are taking on more and more activities that until recently we thought only human beings alone could ever do. The sort of deeper answer is that when you look at the economic forces that have tended to increase the demand for the work of displaced workers in the past, there are reasons to think that because of the technological changes that are taking place, that those forces, we might not be able to rely upon those forces in the future. So you mentioned one example, which is that economic growth means that, you know, if we think of the economy as a pie, the economic pie is far larger than it was 300 years ago and is going to continue to get larger. So workers displaced from a particular corner of the economic pie can move to another part of the pie and and there'll be demand for their work there instead because demand there is growing because of improvements in productivity and and the economic growth that comes along with it. I, I call this in the book, the bigger pie effect. But of course, we know that in particular corners of the economy, it's certainly true that the economic pie is getting larger, but that doesn't necessarily also mean that the demand for the work of human beings is getting larger as well. So I think of agriculture in the UK, the amount that that sector produces has increased almost fivefold since 1860. And yet we now require about 10th of the number of workers to produce that far greater output. The story is the same in in manufacturing in the UK too. And as I write in the book, the story is the same in, in the US and those sectors as well. The point being that it's not necessarily the case that more demand for goods and services doesn't necessarily mean a greater demand for the work of human beings. It's only going to be a greater demand for the work of human beings if human beings are better placed than machines to do whatever tasks it is that have to be done to produce all those goods and services. And in the world of agriculture and manufacturing, there are now systems and machines that can do those activities more efficiently than human beings. And so we haven't seen a rise in the demand for the work of human beings as the output of these different sectors has risen. And so what I'm doing in the book in part is trying to identify these economic forces that throughout history have meant that that automation anxiety has been misplaced, and then try and explain why these technological changes that are taking place might mean that we can't rely upon those helpful economic forces in the 21st century. Again, though, I should say one distinction I make in in the book, and 
I think it's an important one is between two different types of technological unemployment, two different ways that people might find themselves without work. One is what I call structural technological unemployment. And here, there's just simply not enough jobs to go around full stop. But there's then a different type of technological unemployment. And this, I argue, is what we face at the moment, which is a frictional technological unemployment, where there is work to be done. There's plenty of jobs out there. But the challenge is that for various reasons, people aren't able to take up those jobs. And that, again, as a sort of less dramatic account of how displaced workers might find themselves without work because of technological change. But for that worker, him or herself, it's no less troubling and no less threatening a one. There's a lot in that. And I'll play devil's advocate here for just a second. And of course, and I want to get your response to this, which is, I think it's possible to listen to what you're describing, the effects of we're producing more and more with less and less human labor involved. And, you know, why is that a bad thing? Why should we be concerned about that? I mean, isn't it everyone's dream not to have to work so hard? And shouldn't we welcome and embrace this? I mean, what is it that you think work does for us that we might miss if it went away? Yeah. And I think this is, I mean, this is such an important observation. And this is why I think my book is fundamentally an optimistic one for exactly the reason that you say, which is that in the 21st century, the technological progress is likely to solve the fundamental economic problem that has plagued you know, mankind for centuries, which is you know, how do we make the economic pie large enough for everyone to live on? Go back to the turn of the first century AD, and if you had divided the global economic pie up into equal slices for everyone in the world, most people would have got just a few hundred dollars. And roll forward a thousand years, roughly the same would have been true. Almost everyone lived on or around the poverty line. But over the last few hundred years, because of technological progress, economic pies around the world have exploded in size. Global GDP per head, the value of those individual slices of the pie is now about $11,000. In 35 years, it'll be double that again. 35 years, double that again. You know, we've come very close to solving the fundamental economic problem that, as I said, has you know, plagued mankind for centuries. In a sense, technological unemployment is you know, I see it as a symptom of that success that in the 21st century, we're going to solve one problem, namely, how do we make the pie large enough for everyone to live on? But we're going to replace it with another one, which is, well, how do we share out that pie when our traditional way of doing so, paying people for the work that they do, is less effective than it might have been in the past? So my optimism is that you know, collectively, we're going to be more prosperous than ever before because of this technological progress. But at the same time, we're also going to face a distributional challenge of, well, how do we share out that prosperity if we can't rely upon the labor market to do it? And, you know, If you look at the slice of the economic pie that many people around the world get today, it's pitiful. So I see a shift in the nature of the economic problem in the 21st century, away from this challenge of how do we make the pie large enough for everyone to live on, and towards, well, how do we slice up the pie when our traditional way of doing so through the labor market is less effective than it might have been? And that's why when people ask me, is, is the book a pessimistic one? I say, no, it's an optimistic one, because I think that problem, that distributional problem, is a far more attractive problem to have to grapple with than the one that haunted our ancestors for centuries, which was the problem of making the pie large enough for everyone to live on in the first place. Is there a problem underlying that, though? in terms of the role that work plays in life from your perspective? 
we don't just work for money. Work provides structure, provides meaning, it provides purpose. What do you make of that problem? I think it's critical. And so, yeah, part of the book is about the economic challenge, this distributional challenge. How do we share our income in society when we can't rely upon the world of work to do it? But there's there are other challenges that have much less to do with economics at all. And one of these is the challenge of meaning and purpose. As you say, you know, it's often said that work is not simply a source of an income, but as a source of purpose and direction and fulfillment. And if that's right, then the threat of technological change isn't that it might just hollow out the labor market, but it's also that it might hollow out that sense of meaning and direction for many people. What I, in a sense, do in the book is say, you know, if you take seriously this idea that we might find ourselves at some point in the 21st century in a world with less work, then it becomes less and less an issue of you know, the future of work and more and more an issue about the future of spare time. And again, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is you know, say that, well, actually, this relationship between work and meaning people commonly point to, not only does it not hold for many people today, I think there's often a sort of romanticization of how much identity and purpose and meaning many people get from work, but it also hasn't held over time. You know, there's people have had very different relationships to work you know, in, in our you know, short human history. And it may be possible for people to find meaning and purpose and fulfillment elsewhere. So I think this question of meaning is, is really very important. And in the pandemic, that we you know, find ourselves in at the moment, we've caught a glimpse of this, I think. You know, we have found ourselves in a world with less work, not because the robots took all the jobs, but because this virus just completely decimated the demand that so many jobs relied upon. And the interventions that have been required to contain the virus, lockdown, social distancing, self-isolation, and so on, have just made those economic matters even worse. And we have faced both the economic challenge that I described Namely, how, well, how do we share our income in society when people can't get it from the work that they do? But we've also faced this challenge of meaning and purpose. I found it very interesting looking at the kind of public commentary and debate and discussion over the last few months, how much time has been taken by these issues of how to best spend our time in the kind of enforced idleness that many of us have found ourselves in under lockdown. And you know, my general conclusion is that while I think collectively, we have a good sense of what gainful employment looks like. I don't think we have a good sense of what gainful unemployment looks like. And that's one of the challenges that I anticipate in the book. And I think during the pandemic, we've, in a sense, caught a sort of frightening glimpse of. Yeah, I think that's really true. And as we were discussing before we started recording, you know, the situation in the United States has been different in that way. And I'm, I'm really convinced that some of the unrest that we've witnessed is actually the product of this enforced idleness that we've put a lot of people through. Not everybody, of course, but I think it just has a really interesting and distorting effect on people's social and emotional lives that is manifesting itself in conflict because people don't have the normal outlets, both social and economic, that they would have. So I think that's important. And I hadn't really thought of it. I was going to ask you later, you know, everybody's got to take on the pandemic as it relates to their area of study. And that's a very, very interesting one. Let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned frictional unemployment yeah. earlier. That, I take it, is more of a short-term, the immediate-term problem that technology creates. 
that we have a mismatch between the labor market demand and the skill set of the labor force. How do you see that developing your, your analysis? I think you're exactly right that one of the mismatches here is the skills mismatch. Namely, you know, people don't have the right capabilities for the work that has to be done. But just to put that to one side for a second, I think there are also other really important mismatches at work too. I mean, one is just very simply a place mismatch, that people simply don't live in the right geographical place where work is being created. And this is particularly true, I think, for the less paid work. One of the things I think we found during the pandemic is you know, quite how dependent lower paid work is upon particular places, whether it's you know, receptionists and security guards in an office or you know, baristas and waiters and retail assistants on a high street or people you know, involved in you know, transportation sector or so on. Those jobs depend very much upon are rooted in particular places, whereas actually a lot of white collar work is more agnostic with respect to place. There are many white collar workers, of course, have been able to use technology to work from home. So I think one of the challenges is also this place mismatch that people just don't live in the right places where work is being created. But the final mismatch is, is what I call an identity mismatch, where people have a, a particular conception of themselves and they're willing to stay unemployed in order to protect that identity. So you know, think of adult men in the US displaced from you know, traditional manufacturing roles by new technologies. There are some who say, and you know, Lawrence Katz at Harvard is one example of this, that you know, these people would rather, some of these people would rather stay unemployed to protect a particular conception of themselves than take up so-called, and it's a really unfortunate term, so-called pink collar work. But it's a term that's designed to capture the fact that many of the roles that are currently out of reach of automation and in which there's been a lot of job growth are disproportionately held by women. So, you know, more than 90% of preschool and kindergartens teachers in the United States are, are women, more than 80% of nurses and social workers are, are women. So I think alongside the skills mismatch, we've also frictional technological unemployment is also partly a story about place. And I think it's also partly a story about identity too. And in conversations about the future of work, those other two dimensions to the story sometimes fall away. So this is a matter of that perplexes me on a regular basis in the, yeah. in the way that we talk about sort of education and training in the United States. And, and this has been the, you know, since the 1950s, we have yeah. told everyone that they really need to focus on acquisition of technical skills. It's STEM or bust. Yeah. It's kind of the sense. And, and it's just, it's everywhere you turn. And yet, most of the research seems to point toward these, as you, you know, you called it pink collar, but an increasing sort of labor market return to what the economists call non-cognitive skills, the interpersonal communication, teamwork, you know, these capacities, these human capacities, it's actually those skills that have the most consistent return within the labor market, at least, you know, over the last 20 years or so. And I'm wondering what you make of that. If a young person came to you and asked you for advice on how to prepare for the future, this future yeah. in which work is hard to come by, what would you tell them? Yeah, I mean, my response would, I think, reflect yours as well, which is that like, I'd say you have two strategies. Either you try and become the sort of person who can build these systems and machines, and that's the sort of STEM route, you know, the person who's capable of designing and 
understanding and, and using them. Or you try and compete with these systems and machines and you try and do the sorts of things that these systems and machines cannot do. And exactly as you say, even the most capable machines can't necessarily encroach on tasks that require things like interpersonal interaction and certain types of manual dexterity, certain types of creativity and so on. One of the most interesting things I've read recently, though, a new book by a commentator in the UK called David Goodhart. And the book is called Head, Hand and Heart. It just came out last week. And and his argument is, you know, there are very broadly three types of work. There are head roles, there are hand roles, and there are heart roles. And as a society, in the spirit in which you're saying, we have tended to put too much emphasis on head roles. And we tended to you know, suggest to many people that the pursuit of head roles is the sort of the way to go. And he's interested in less from the economic point of view, but more from a sort of moral point of view, that one of the consequences of that emphasis has been that a lot of the esteem and a lot of status has sort of drifted towards cognitive roles and been lost from many hand and heart roles. And that one of the things we need to do isn't just a sort of a reallocation of economic emphasis towards hand and heart roles, but also a sort of social emphasis with respect to the sort of esteem and status attached to hand and heart roles as well. And again, this has been something quite interesting in, in the pandemic that I don't know if it's been an observation that's been made in the US, but in the UK, there's been quite a lot written about the sort of irony of calling key workers key workers. I don't know what the, the term is for key workers. Yeah, essential, essential workers. Essential US, workers. Yeah. yeah. Just many people have noted the sort of mismatch between you know, the social value of, of what many of these key workers do and, and the sort of market value that they receive. And these sorts of mismatches in esteem and status and pay with respect to hand and heart roles relative to head roles, I think is 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 something that is very important. I, and, and again, I don't just think it, you know, increasingly, I think it's not just about the economics here. It's also about what roles as a society we attach status and esteem and respect to. And his, yeah, and his argument yeah, is I, that it's changed a great deal over the 20th century and we need to start rebalancing. And, you know, there are elements of that argument that I find you know, quite compelling. Yeah, I think that it's fascinating. I'll have to pick that up and have a chat with him as well, because that's a really key issue for me. I, I mean, I noted that in the presidential campaign here, Vice President Biden has proposed a rather significant investment in what he calls the caring economy of building up the capacity for you know things like childcare and elder care and things like that. And I wondered when I heard him roll that out, whether this is both kind of a, it's addressing a real need in society, but it's also a way of kind of framing this longer term question around how we esteem these things, how we value them, how we compensate for them as well. Let's shift to some of the specific issues relating to artificial intelligence. You talk about AI, artificial intelligence, and algorithms as being a different kind of intelligence from human intelligence. I'd like you to talk about that. So the book is as much about artificial intelligence, really, and so technology as it is about economics. I'm really fascinated by the history of artificial intelligence and and what's happened in the field that means that the current capabilities of machines and likely capabilities of machines in the future mean that, as we were talking about before, the impact on the labor market is likely to be quite different from from what we've seen. I imagine if I was being true to myself, I mean, I'd say these systems aren't, it's not that they are intelligent in a different way. I'd say that they're not intelligent at all. 
or at least intelligent in the way that we tend to think of the word intelligent. I say that they are very capable, but they're not intelligent. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. For a long time in the field of artificial intelligence, the view was that if you wanted to get a system or machine to outperform a human being, you had to sit down with a human being, get them to articulate how it was they solved any particular problem. And then you had to try and capture that human explanation in a set of instructions or rules for a machine to follow. There was a sense in which these systems and machines had to copy human beings if they were to outperform them. Now, I know this because, as I said at the start, my dad was part of the vanguard in artificial intelligence. When he was designing that system, which was intending to solve, when he was designing systems trying to solve legal problems, his view was that you had to sit down with a lawyer, get them to explain to you how it was they solved a problem, and then try and capture that in a set of instructions for a system to follow. The machine capabilities had to, in a sense, ride on the coattails of human intelligence. Now, the great issue here was that for many tasks and activities, if you sat down with a human being and said, look, tell me how it is that you do what you do, people would struggle. They'd say things, you know, they might be able to give you a few rules of thumb, but ultimately they'd say things like it requires you know, judgment, intuition, experience. You know, they couldn't necessarily articulate how they did a particular task. And so it was thought those tasks would be very hard to automate. If a human being can't tell you the rules that they follow, where on earth do we begin in writing a set of instructions for a machine to follow? And this actually, this view of how machine of machine capability, I argue in the book, is responsible for the view of machine capabilities that has been dominant in economics for some time, namely this routine versus non-routine distinction that machines can perform routine tasks but cannot perform non-routine tasks. Why did economists make that distinction? Well, the definition of routine in the minds of economists were tasks that human beings can articulate how they perform them. And non-routine tasks were those that human beings could not articulate themselves for. Now, of course, what we've seen over the last few years is increasingly lots of non-routine tasks have been automated. You know, what are the tasks of driving a car, making a medical diagnosis and identifying a bird? at a fleeting glimpse have in common, well, these are all tasks that, again, you know, until recently, many leading economists thought couldn't readily be automated. And yet today, you know, to some extent, all of them can be. You know, almost all major car manufacturers have driverless car programs. There are countless systems that can make medical diagnosis. And there's even an app developed by the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology that if you give it a photo of a bird, it can tell you what it is at a, at a fleeting glimpse. Now, The issue here, why were economists wrong? It wasn't just a case of bad luck. It was that that old view of machine capabilities, that that they had to be rooted in some sense in human intelligence and the rules and reasoning that we follow, that turned out to be a mistake. They take medical diagnosis. Team of researchers at Stanford recently announced the development of a system that if you give it a photo of a freckle, it will tell you as accurately as leading dermatologists whether or not that freckle is cancerous. How does it work? It's not trying to copy the rules that a human doctor might follow. It's got a database of about 130,000 past cases, and it's running what's essentially a pattern recognition algorithm through those cases. They're hunting for similarities between them and the particular photo of the troubling lesion in question. It's performing the task in an unhuman way, based on the analysis of more possible cases than any human doctor could hope to review in their lifetime. And so what I argue has happened in the field of artificial intelligence as a result of the remarkable advances in processing power, 
data storage capability and algorithm design is that we've seen a shift in mentality from one of purism, which is that machine capabilities have to, in some sense, reflect some aspect of human intelligence, the rules that we follow, the reasoning processes that we're engaged, or indeed, and even in some cases, our, our anatomy. And there's been a shift from purism to pragmatism, you know, where machines are judged not by how they perform a particular task, but by how well they perform them. And often, the ways in which they perform these tasks are very different from the ways that we reason and think and the rules that we follow. So there's been a shift, I think, in the origins of machine, or at least the understanding of where machine capabilities come from in the field of artificial intelligence. And that is now starting to be reflected, I think, in the way that economists think about machine capabilities as well. But until very recently, it wasn't. And this routine versus non-routine distinction was holding quite strongly. So this takes me to an issue, the question of recursive self-improvement in these AI systems and their ability, not just to learn, but to sort of adapt and change. This is where some of the scary stuff (laughs) finds its home, I think, when we talk about artificial intelligence. Where are we in developing algorithms that are able to sort of change themselves as they respond to changing data sets or environment? I mean, I think that's an important feature of many of the most capable systems today, that it's not a mistake that many of these are called machine learning systems because they are they are learning both from past data provided from human experience, but also from you know their own experience as well. They're continually revising and updating. I should say that you use the word scary, and I, and I think there's an important point to make here, which is that there's often, I think too much attention is given to issues of whether or not we're, we're close to building you know, a super intelligence or an artificial general intelligence. What do I mean by those things? Well, whether or not we're getting close to building a system that can perform lots of different tasks and activities to the same sort of standard or higher than a human being. And I think this is a bit of a distraction. What actually matters is not having one system or machine that can perform lots of tasks and activities, but just having lots of different machines, which may be you know, not particularly super intelligent and will not be artificially generally intelligent, they'll be artificially narrowly intelligent, but they're able to perform each of these individual tasks, each of these machines to a very high standard. We don't need conscious machines or you know, intelligent machines or thinking machines to have very capable machines, albeit in narrow domains. And I worry sometimes that our focus on these more dramatic or scary stories about you know, all-powerful, all-capable individual systems and machines distracts us from the really dramatic impact that lots of narrowly capable systems and machines can have on the work that we do. So I want to start closing this out here now. I want to return to some of the economics of this. You've got a line in the book, which I found particularly intriguing, which was, Today's inequality signals tomorrow's technological unemployment. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah. It's written in part in response to those who think that technological unemployment is a sort of distant threat dreamed up by sort of shock-haired economists that people don't have to really worry about today. And, And I think this is a great mistake. I don't think it's a coincidence that today worries about inequality are intensifying at exactly the same time that worries about automation are growing. The two problems are very closely related, in my view. 
and this is really one of the core arguments of the book. You know, today the labor market is the main way that we share our income in society. For most people, their job is their main, if not their only, source of income. Yeah. The inequalities that we see around us today show that this approach is, in my view, already creaking. You know, some people get far more in the labor market for their efforts than others. Now, technological unemployment, in my view, is simply a more extreme version of that very same story, but one where some workers receive nothing at all. And so, in a sense, I see today's inequalities as a kind of birth pangs of tomorrow's technological unemployment. The two problems are well, technological unemployment is just, as I said, a, a more extreme version of what we already see unfolding today. Yeah, that's a very disheartening prospect, right? I mean, it's this idea that we actually see the labor market value of some labor dropping to zero. That's what technological unemployment is, that's right? What, that I think is one way to think about it. Yes. You know, inequality yeah. is a world where some people's human capital is far more valuable than others. And technological unemployment is a world where some people's human capital just doesn't receive much value in the, in the labor market at all. What I'm trying to do there is respond to those who say technological unemployment is a sort of, it's science fiction, it's in the future, we don't need to worry about that now. And, and I just don't think that's right. I see it as being very closely related to the sort of economic inequalities that we already see. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is that the future doesn't arrive in a moment. The future arrives continuously and sort of creeps up on us. I think it's a compelling insight into some of the challenges we face. So assuming that all this is correct, what's your recommendation? And let's be at a, at a high level, you yeah. know, what should society, what should government, what should the human capital machine that we have to help people adapt, what should it yeah. be thinking about and doing? So I see three problems, three challenges here. One is the economic challenge that we mentioned, namely, well, how do we share our income in society when we can't rely upon the labor market to do it? The other challenge we've spoken about, this issue of meaning and purpose, and what do we do in a world where work might no longer sit at the center of some people's lives? But a third challenge, which we haven't actually spoken about today, but I think is part of this same story, is what we do about the growing power, and in particular, the growing political power of large technologies companies who are responsible for developing these technologies in the first place. I think most, most people's attention, though, tends to focus on that first economic challenge. And let me just at a high level, explain how I think we ought to respond to it. I mean, what I argue in the book is that if we cannot rely upon the labor market to share our income in society, then we need some other mechanism. And it seems to me that the only reliable mechanism to do that is the state. And I call this in the book, the big state. Now, the key thing here, though, is that this is not the big state of the 20th century. This is not teams of smart people sitting in central government offices with blueprints trying to command and control economic affairs. You know, the 20th century was a pilot scheme in that sort of setup, and we know it does not work. What I have in mind here is not a big state of production, but it's a big state of distribution. It's a big state that has to take a larger role in sharing our income in society. And you, know, you mentioned how people have taken to seeing their, the problems that preoccupied them through the lens of the pandemic. But I think the pandemic has been quite an interesting, again, quite an interesting case study here because we have faced this exact same challenge. The labor market in many parts of the economy broke down and, and people couldn't rely upon it to get an income through no fault of their own. 
And what have we seen around the world? Well, we've seen exactly that. We've seen the state step forward to take a sort of unprecedented role in sharing out income in society. And just to give you a sense, in the UK, we've had something called the furlough scheme, which at one point saw the government paying up to 80% of 10 million employees' wages, which is just put that in context, that's about a third of the total number of employees in the UK. An intervention that would have been simply unimaginable six months ago. And in a world where we find ourselves unable to rely upon the labor market to share our income in society, I can't see what other way in which we might share our income other than through the state. And this is what we've seen today. But again, I suppose it's important again, and this is what we've talked about a couple of times, is that there's not going to be a technological big bang where we wake up and find ourselves without large numbers of people without work, at least due to technological change. It seems to me that for now, again, the challenge is that frictional one. You know, how do we match people with the jobs that are available? And the lesson there is, well, this isn't just a skills challenge. This is also a challenge of identity and a challenge of place. But further afield, when we move from a world of frictional technological unemployment to more structural issues, then I think these issues about the state actively taking a role in sharing our income in society are just going to become inevitably important. Fascinating. Well, I want to explore this idea further about how the pandemic has given us a preview, potentially given us a preview of what might be in store later on. I mean, it, it hasn't been a technological Big Bang, but it's kind of mimicked that Big Bang in terms of what we might see in terms of the way governments and societies respond to the stresses and strains that are imposed by the, the world without work that you talk about in your books. That's exactly right. And I just hope that we are able to learn lessons during this crisis of what works and what doesn't, because my fear is that we, exactly as you say, have sort of caught a glimpse of the kind of challenges that I think we'll face in the next few decades. Now, we face them now because of the virus, but I think in, in years to come, we will face them again because of technological change. And as I said, I hope we can learn the lessons. Daniel Suskin, thank you so much for joining me today on Hardly Working. It's been a fascinating conversation. Everybody needs to pick up the book, A World Without Work, and read it and think about it. Because for those of us who are further along in years, this won't be such a pressing question or less of a pressing question, I think. But for younger people, this is really, you know, these are important issues you're raising. So I thank you for writing the book. And thanks again for joining us. Not at all. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Hardly Working. I'm your host, Brent Orell, and I hope you tune in next time to learn more about the state of workforce development in America. Be sure to like and subscribe to our podcast. Let us know at vocation at AEI.org if there are any topics you'd like us to cover. As always, we hope you find the job that fits so well, it feels like you're hardly working.